All right. Well, I'm sure a number of you have taught Sunday school in the past. And if you haven't taught Sunday school, I imagine many of you probably attended Sunday school at one point or another in your lives growing up. Probably not everyone by any means, but a number of us probably have. And I would be willing to bet that one of the most commonly asked questions in a Sunday school classroom is, why did Jesus die? I I bet the most frequently... Uh, the most frequent response to that question would be, well, he died for our sins. That's what all the kids say. Jesus died for our sins. We say, yes, amen, Jesus died for our sins. If you've grown up in the church, you know that Jesus died to save you from your sins. Okay, I grew up in a church that did not preach the gospel by any stretch of the imagination, except for Jesus died for your sins. If you went to, uh, if you just did a poll in the, at the mall or at the park and you just asked unbelievers or unchurched people, hey, do you know why Jesus died? They're likely going to say something like, well, yeah, I mean, didn't he like die for your sins or whatever? And we would say, yes, not whatever. <laughs> Jesus died for your sins. He died to save us from our sins. Jesus died for the forgiveness of sin so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. And our text today, it unpacks the glory of this amazing truth. If I were to summarize in one slightly long sentence what this text teaches us this morning, here's what it would be. It's that in his providence, God proved his love for us by sending Jesus to die so that we might be justified and reconciled to him for the eternal praise of his glory. In his providence, God proved his love for us by sending Jesus to die so that we might be justified and reconciled to him for the eternal praise of his glory. That's what our text teaches us. Jesus died for us. But first, who is this Jesus? Why does it matter that Jesus died? Paul begins the letter to Romans establishing who Jesus is. He he says that Jesus is the descendant of David and he was appointed to be the powerful son of God or according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead, okay? Those are the words that Paul uses to open up the whole book of Romans. In doing this, what he's doing is he's establishing the deity of the son, that Jesus is God. He writes in other places like Colossians, Paul says that he is the image of the invisible God and the firstborn over all creation, He says he is the fullness of God, or the fullness of God dwells bodily in Christ. The author of Hebrews says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature. See, Jesus was God in the flesh, which means that his very nature, by his very nature, he was without sin. He was perfect in every way, perfectly obedient to the Father, perfectly righteous. 
but beyond his nature. Just consider the life of Jesus. Okay, I mean, who he was as a human. Jesus was a remarkable teacher. Right? He was able to teach the scriptures in a way that people could understand. Jesus loved children. He was tender-hearted towards children. He was one who performed countless miracles, right? Jesus healed tons of people. I mean, just, just imagine for a minute that you have been blind from birth and moved with compassion for you, a man reaches out his hand and he touches you and he heals you and you can see for the very first time. Or imagine that you've been unable to walk for years. Your ability to move around is completely dependent on another person. And a man sees you and he reaches out and out of compassion for you, he touches you and he heals you and you can stand up and you can walk for the very first time. Imagine that you've been deaf your whole life. Never have you heard the sound of music. Never have you heard birds singing in the early morning. You've never heard the sound of a toddler laugh. And a man sees you. He sees that you're deaf. And he comes to you. He takes both of his hands. He places them over your ears. And then he lets go. And for the very first time, the world comes alive with sound. Imagine you have leprosy. You've not felt the touch of a human hand for decades. Anywhere you went, people walked as far away from you as possible. And one day, a man sees you. And rather than going as far away from you as possible, he goes towards you. He goes near you, and he touches you. And his touch heals your leprosy. These miracles and countless more were done by the very man, Jesus of Nazareth. John ends his gospel, and he says, There were also many other things that Jesus did, which if every one of them were written down, I suppose not even the world itself could contain the books that would be written. So yes, Jesus was God in the flesh, of course, but even from a human standpoint, Jesus was good. The amount of good he was able to do for others was immeasurable. He was God and he was good. And his life ended at the hand of Roman soldiers in a gruesome, bloody, and humiliating death hanging on a cross. Why? Why? This is the question the text answers for us. Why did Jesus die? It seems unthinkable that a man this good would be nailed to a cross. I think our text, it gives us seven reasons this morning for why Jesus died. Why he, this good man, this God man, gave his life. Seven reasons And we're going to work through these reasons for our time this morning. Okay, so number one, why did Jesus die? Number one, Jesus died because it was the right time. Verse six says, while we were still helpless at the right time, Jesus died for the ungodly. A number of scholars, they they look at the historical and political landscape of the time of Jesus' life and death. And what they do is they, they point to something called the Pax Romana. 
Okay, and this Pax Romana, what it was, it was uh, translated Roman peace, and it was a time of relative economic and political stability and Roman rule. And this stability of the Roman rule it enabled conditions that were ideal for the spread of the gospel to go forth. And so when scholars think about the right time, they're like, well, of course, it just it makes sense that God would allow his son to die now because then the message of his death and the forgiveness it secures for people would go forth easily, particularly with new roads that had been constructed to connect cities. And I don't think that's co- coincidental at all. Right? I, I think God, God's hand was certainly at work in orchestrating that for the spread of the gospel during that time. But I also think when it, we think about at the right time, there's something bigger we need to consider. And that something is the fact that there actually is a right time. Right? The life and death of Jesus, it was not random. And the reason is because the Bible tells a story. Right? The whole Bible is telling a story about God and his people. It tells the, the, the universal human rebellion against God and then God's relentless pursuit to redeem his people back to himself. And like all stories, they progress over a timeline. See, the life and death of Jesus is not just some blip on this historical map. Right? It, it, instead, it was the climactic moment of God's redemptive story of which we are all a part. And so as the providential providential author of history, of this story, God appointed Jesus to die at the right time. It was the right time for Jesus to die because God established it as such. So Jesus died at the right time in God's providence. But number two, Jesus died for us. Why did Jesus die? Well, Jesus died for us. Verse 6, it says, while we were still helpless. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. See, Jesus didn't die because you showed some potential. He didn't die because you just needed a little bit of help to get there. It's not like you showed some promise of being good enough or worthy enough for him to die for you. No, you were completely morally weak and incapable of saving yourself. That's what it means that you were helpless. I think what Paul has in mind when he writes this word helpless here, I think he has Ezekiel 16 in his mind. Ezekiel 16, the prophet Ezekiel, he's describing the nation of Israel. And this is how he he begins to describe the nation of Israel. He says, as for your birth, your umbilical cord wasn't cut on the day you were born. And you weren't washed clean with water. You were not rubbed with salt or wrapped in clothes. No one cared enough about you to to do even one of these things out of compassion for you. But you were thrown out into the open field because you were despised on the day you were born. And I passed by you and saw you thrashing around in your blood. And I said to you as you lay in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you as you lay in your blood, live. This is the picture of pure helplessness. We were completely and utterly dependent on a miraculous rescue. 
Paul says, not only were we helpless, but we were still sinners. While we were still sinners, what? Christ died for us. We were morally corrupt, rebellious against God. Not only were we helpless sinners, but in verse 10, Paul says that we were enemies of God, that we were fully opposed to God. Jesus died for the enemies of God. You and I were enemies of God. And as God's enemies, we were fully deserving of of God's wrath. We were fully deserving of eternal death in hell. So when Paul says that Christ died for us, what he's not saying is that we just needed a little favor. We didn't just need Jesus's help to come along and do something for us. No, he died for us in that Jesus died in our place as our substitute. See, Jesus crumbled under the weight of God's wrath and judgment poured out instead of you. You were his enemy. What would compel Jesus to die for his enemies, to die for you and for me? the love of God it is his love number three Jesus died as proof of God's love so verse seven says for rarely will someone die for a just person though for a good person perhaps someone might even dare to die you want to do a little exercise with me little not physical exercise that would be fun but maybe a little mental exercise Right now, I want you to make a mental list of people that you would be willing to give your life for. Okay, if you were in a situation with someone and it came down to your life or their life, who would need to be with you? Who would need to be that other person in order for you to say, it'll be my life, not theirs? Here's my hunch. My hunch is that your list is probably pretty small. And if it's a list at all, it probably includes the names of those who you love the most. See, your willingness to sacrifice your life for them, it's not on the basis of their goodness. Not at all. It's on the basis of your love for them. See, rarely does someone die for a good person. It's not based on the other person's goodness. It's on the basis of their love for the other person. This is Paul's point. See, Jesus' death is not on the basis of your goodness. His death isn't a declaration of your goodness. His death doesn't show that you're worthy of his death. No, you are helpless. You are a sinner. You are an enemy of God. But in verse 8, Paul writes this, But God proves his own love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If you were to ask me if my wife loves me, do you know what I'm going to say? I'm going to say, yes, of course she loves me. And if you ask me, well, how do you know she loves you? 
I would say, I, I don't know. I just know she loves me. It's like my experience of my relationship with her. I don't deserve her love by any stretch of the imagination, but I know she loves me. If you asked me if she has ever proven her love for me, I would say, I don't know. Maybe. I don't, I don't really pay attention to that. She doesn't need to prove her love for me. I'm not looking for proof of her love because I just know that she loves me. I trust the same is true with her. I trust that she feels loved by me as I feel loved by her. I trust that there's just a, a conviction and a confidence in one another's love that we have. But I think about God. See, if you're anything like me, you might have moments where you genuinely feel loved by the God of the universe. You just trust that God loves you, but then you likely also have moments where, for whatever reason, you doubt God's love. God's love, it seems distant. It doesn't really seem real. You can't necessarily walk in it or experience it for whatever reason. You don't feel loved by the God who created you. And maybe it's for a number of reasons. Maybe it's for, uh, because of your circumstances. Right? In the midst of affliction, you, you look at what's going on in your life and, and you think, wow, how could God love me when he allows such difficulty into my life? Or maybe it's not your circumstances. Maybe it's just your sin. And you look at your sin, and in the midst of your rebellion, you think, how could God love someone like me? A a pitiful, selfish, weak, disgusting mess of a failure like me. See, there are answers to those questions, no doubt. But the amazing truth of this passage is that we don't need answers to those questions. We don't need to know how he could love us to know that he does love us. And the reason is because we're not needing to look inwardly at our ever-changing subjective feelings to to determine the depth of God's love. We don't have to rely on favorable circumstances and we don't have to rely on our self-righteousness to have confidence that God loves us. We can instead look very objectively at the death of his son, knowing that his death was in our place. This is the love of God. It is an indiscriminate, unconditional, and unbreaking love that is available to all who will believe. We look at the death of Christ. John 3.16, it says that God loved the world in this way. That he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And then 1 John 4.9, it says that God's love was revealed among us in this way. That God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might have life through him. Here's what strikes me about these passages. It says that God loved the world through what? Through the act of sending his son. Right? It was the act of sending his son that was how God loved the world. But then 1 John 4, 9, it says that the act of sending his son 
was a means of revealing his love, of showing us his love, which means that God's love goes deeper than the act of sending his son. Right? It is more than just the action. It's the action of what he did by sending his son that points to a love that God just has for you. Right? The action is just revealing like a state of being of who God is. God has a, div- a divine affection and delight for his people. He doesn't just love you out of obligation. No, he chose to love you because for lack of, lack of a better word, he likes you. Like God likes you. He treasures you. He rejoices over you. He cherishes you as his child. And what's more, that love that he has for you, it will not run out. There are some wedding vows today in recent history. They have a little addendum to their wedding vows. And they, they promise to be faithful to one another. And, and they say, until death do us part, or until our love runs out. And as contrary to God's design for marriage as that is, it at least is acknowledging that the love that we feel towards one another can change. Yes, it can grow, but it can also diminish. And God's love is not like our love. See, God's love is not threatened by anything that we might do or say. And God proves his unbreaking love for us because he has unbreaking love for us. And he has unbreaking love for us because that is who God is. It is his very nature. 1 John 4, 15 through 16 says, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God remains in him and he in God. And we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. Have you come to know and to believe the love that God has for you? You were his enemy. You were his enemy. And while you were his enemy, he sent his very son, not because he had to, not because you deserved rescue, but because he loves you. Number four, Jesus died to justify us. Romans 5, 9, how much more then? Since we have now been justified by his blood, will, will we be saved through him from wrath? And in Romans, Paul has already covered this idea of justification very extensively. Right? What does it mean to be justified? It means to be declared righteous before God. Right? You are declared free from the guilt of your sin. He says in chapter 3 that no one is justified by the works of the law. It's not by doing things that declares us righteous. He says that you are justified freely by the grace, by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It is only through Christ, through Christ Jesus that we are justified. So in Christ, God was meeting our greatest need, right? Which was to be declared righteous before him. 
And it wasn't like the death of Christ was like one of many options that God could choose from for our justification. No, it was the only way in which we could be justified. Paul writes in Galatians that if there was any other way for us to become righteous through the works of the law, then Christ would have died for nothing. Christ did not die for nothing. He is the only way that we can be justified. He died to justify us. Number five, Jesus died to reconcile us. Verse 10 says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more having been reconciled will we be saved by his life? When we go back to the term justification, that, that term is like legal language, right? It, it refers to our legal status before God, right? It's a, it's a positional declaration that we are declared innocent. It's a court-ordered verdict of innocence, if you will. The term reconciliation, though, that is experiential. It is relational language. It refers to our relational status before God. And the dictionary defines reconciliation like this. It is the restore or the restoration of friendly relations. Reconciliation is the restoration of friendly relations. So here's the thing. In order for a relationship to be restored, two things need to have happened. Okay? One, there needs to have been a relationship in the first place. And two, that relationship needs to have been broken. Those are the conditions that enable reconciliation to take place. So the relationship need to have existed in the first place. And back in the first two chapters of Genesis, we get a clear picture of the closeness and the intimacy, this original relationship that God had with his people. And this relationship that he created us for, it was far more than just friendly relations. It was deeply intimate. I mean, consider how Adam's life began. It says that God breathed his own breath into Adam. It's a deeply intimate beginning of an existence for his people. God himself walked among Adam and Eve in the garden. So at the very beginning, God dwelled relationally with his creation. But then we get to the fall. And in Genesis 3, we see that Adam and Eve sinned. And the first thing that we read about is that they realize their own nakedness. Okay, so they, they realize they're naked and they cover themselves which shows that the very first thing that sin impacted was this deep, close, perfect intimacy that Adam and Eve would have had with one another. And then the second thing we read, it says, the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God. God was already distant. They could only hear him now. And what did they do? It says they hid from him among the trees of the garden. And the Lord called out to the man, where are you? So this perfect, unhindered, intimate relationship that God had with his people is now gone. And at the end of chapter 3 of Genesis, God drives Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden, away from his glorious presence. And from this point on, the rest of Scripture is telling the story of God's pursuit of reconciliation. Right? It's telling the story of God's pursuit of removing the sin of his people because the sin is what was causing the barrier. 
They could not be reconciled to God. They could not be in right relationship with God because of sin. And so the result of sin, hear this, it's more than just a punishment. The result of sin, it is an eternal separation from God's relational presence. And the only way to restore that right, intimate relationship with God that was lost in the garden, it is to remove the cause of that separation, which is sin. Sin is the barrier that needs to be removed. And that barrier was removed in Christ. John 3.16, again, this verse You know this verse, for God loved the world in this way. He sent his one and only son so that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. And then John later in his gospel in chapter 17, verse three, he says, this is eternal life that they may know you, the one true God and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. Do you see that Jesus died to give us eternal life, meaning that Jesus died so that we could know God, we could be reconciled to God, have relationship with God. He did that. He died so that God would dwell among us and that we would dwell with God as his people. So God died so that we might have relationship with him let me ask you this question how is your relationship with god how is it see notice in verse 10 for if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. What tense is that in? That's in past tense, isn't it? it? The reconciliation happened in the past through the death of Jesus. It doesn't say that you will be reconciled someday. It says that you are today, right now. If you are in Christ, you are reconciled with God. You are free then to know him and walk with him and pray to him and enjoy the God of the universe who created you and knows you and loves you. Your sin has been removed. It has been paid for. That happened in Christ. You have been justified. You have been declared righteous before God. And this justification has opened the door for a restored relationship. You are no longer God's enemy. You are God's friend. Is he yours? God has pursued a relationship with you. Are you pursuing one with him? And you might think to yourself, yes. Yes, I am. And it's wonderful. Praise God. You might be thinking, I don't know. I don't know, but I I want to. You might think some days, yes, some days are just more difficult. I don't know. But I want a relationship with the God who created me and knows me and loves me. And so what I want to do is I want to very quickly just provide four practical things that we can do to pursue this relationship with God. Just take a couple minutes to do this. The first thing that we must do, I think this is pretty evident already, but we must receive Christ. We must receive Christ. If you are not in Christ, you're not reconciled to God. You're not God's friend. You are God's enemy. You stand opposed to God. God stands opposed to you. You're not justified. 
you're not reconciled. And so you must, by faith, first receive Christ. And what this means, it means acknowledging your sin and repenting of your sin and trusting only in the blood of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin. And this is very important to understand. That is the one thing that will save you. Your faith in Christ will save you. But nothing else that I'm about to say has any weight or merit or, or, or ability to actually save you from your sin. Okay? So the second thing that we do, if we are in Christ, then we read the word. We read the word. Your Bible reading does not save you. But your Bible reading is the means through which you get to pursue a relationship with God. Because the Bible, do you know what it is? It is the inspired word of God. God wrote this for us. It is how God has revealed himself to us. And so it is the means through which we experience a relationship with him. The Bible, it is living and active. It is an endless storehouse of treasures and truths and promises. It is the means through which we can have a meaningful authentic and vibrant relationship with God and it's not possible to have that without his word you can you can do a lot without reading the bible can't you i mean you can you can go to work you can have a great attitude at work and not read the bible you can feel really successful and make a lot of money without reading the bible you can share the gospel without reading the bible you can serve in the church you can sing songs you can be a really, 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 really fun mom and dad without reading the Bible. You can get A's on your homework. You can lead a team. You can make dinner tonight without reading the Bible. But you cannot have a meaningful, vibrant, authentic relationship with God without his word. We need God's word in our lives. If you want to pursue a relationship with God, then you read the Bible. You listen to it. You dwell on it. You allow God's word to soften your heart. And if you've never read the Bible before, that's okay. If you're, you have no idea where to start or what to do when it comes to cracking open this book and reading it, that's okay. I would encourage you to talk to someone. Come find me. Talk to me. Talk to one of our other pastors here. Talk to a Bible study leader here. Talk to a friend that you know goes here who loves God's word, who treasures God's word, and ask them to teach you. The Bible is the means through which we have a relationship with God. So we want to read the word. Number three, we want to pray the word. See, because a relationship by nature, it's not just one way. So God has given us his word to know him, but he also knows us and he wants us to feel known by him. And so he not only invites us, he actually commands us to pray to him and to pour our hearts out to him. But here's what I've discovered in my own prayer life over the years. It doesn't take long for prayers to grow dry, for God to feel distant. It, it can feel like I'm just kind of repeating the same thing into the air to no one. Prayer can be a, a chore rather than an opportunity to commune with the God who created me. And in those moments, you know what we need to do? We, we need to persevere. It's good to persevere in prayer. But, but if God has reconciled us into relationship, consider how relationships work from a human standpoint, right? When you get lunch with a coworker, 
or you sit down on the couch with your spouse to have a conversation, you're chatting with a friend after their service here, like how does that typically go? Do you spend like 10 or 15 minutes just talking the whole entire time about something? And then the other person spends about 10 or 15 minutes talking about something completely unrelated? Like, that would be weird. Maybe it happens, but usually that's not how relationships work. It's usually a connected dialogue back and forth where you're both listening to and responding to one another based on what the other person says. This is how human relationships work. And one of the foundations of every relationship is meaningful and authentic communication. And I think a relationship with God operates on that same principle, which is why when it comes to prayer, I think much of what we pray ought to be rooted in the word of God. We use God's word and allow his word to shape our response to him. Okay, It is good to have lists. It's good to have people that you want to faithfully pray for, circumstances you want to regularly pray over. But God has spoken to us. Let us be shaped and molded by that. Just by way of example, consider our passage this morning. Take a look at the first verse of our passage. Verse 6. We crack the Bible open. We read verse 6 of chapter 5 in Romans. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Father, while we were still helpless, Lord, that is me. God, I recognize my helpless estate. To the best of my ability, I recognize, God, how far away I was from you. You said It says you died for the ungodly. Lord, that's me. Oh, how I went my own way, how I rebelled against you, how I wanted to do things according to my own agenda, my own plan. I was the king on my throne. I was ungodly. And God, thank you that you sent Christ to die even for me. Let the word of God shape how you approach the God of the universe. Let it be the foundation of your relationship with him. And as you read God's word and you pray God's word, number four, obey the word. We engage in our relationship with God through word and through prayer. That relationship, it will only be strengthened as we step out in obedience to his word. Right? Consider again how human relationships work. Yes, communication is foundational, but so is behavior, isn't it? Relationships are shaped by how we treat one another, what we do for one another, not just what we say or how we listen. In 1 John 5, 3, it says this, This is what love for God is, to keep his commands. God proved his love for us in sending his son to die. And we have the opportunity to show our love for God as we read his word, we pray his word, but then we step out and we obey his commands. So Jesus died to reconcile us. If you are in Christ, you have been reconciled. You have a relationship with God. Pursue it. Pursue it by reading, praying, and obeying his word. Number six, Jesus died to save us from wrath. Verses 9 and 10 says, How much more then, since we have now been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath? 
For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? In other words, if God has already done the hard work of declaring us righteous and calling us his friends when we were his enemies, then how much more, now that we are his friends, will he save us? See, his love met us when we were weak and helpless and in need. And now that we are in his love, he will surely save us to the end. We do not need to fear the wrath of God that we so clearly deserve. Jesus died to save us from wrath. Finally, number seven. Jesus died so that we might boast in God. Yes, Jesus died to save us from wrath, but he also died to save us for himself, that we might boast or rejoice in him. Verse 11, it says, not only that, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. Do you see that this is the whole point of your reconciliation? This is the point of your relationship with him. It is our joy in him. The word boast means to rejoice in God, to exult in God, to be caught up in his glory and goodness to us, to experience the fullness of joy that his presence offers us. That's what it means to boast. Without justification and reconciliation, we cannot rejoice in his presence. Without justification and reconciliation, we'll make it. I'm going to stand really still. Without justification and reconciliation, the only thing we can do is we can cower in fear and guilt and regret. That's what we can do. But since we have been justified and reconciled, we are now free to see him and to know him and to rejoice in him. John Piper has this quote. He says, to see him and know him and be in his presence is the soul's final feast. Beyond this, there is no quest. So why did Jesus die? He died to save us from our sins, of course. But more than that, he died so that we might see God and know God and stand in his presence with great joy. In his providence, God proved his love for us by sending Jesus to die so that we might be justified and reconciled to him for the eternal praise of his glory. Let's pray.